go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello again, and welcome to The Green Dot, EA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director here at EAA. I'm one of your hosts, and across the table. I'm one of your other hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And Chris, you want to introduce the uh, gentleman sitting across from you there? Absolutely. As I always say, I love episodes where we have a cool guest with us. We certainly do today. Uh Today we have Colonel Chris Strickland with us. Uh, Colonel, thank you for coming up and being with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. It's always a great time to be here at EAA, and I appreciate spending time with you. Absolutely. Well, tonight, uh, we, when we're recording this, we're recording this on a Friday here, uh, tonight something very special is happening, and um, you're actually launching uh, your book with us here tonight. I am, and it's an honor to do that with such a passionate crowd about aviation, uh, to launch a book about an incident that happened to me a while back and, and how my family dealt with it and what it means to us today. Well, it, it, it's really an honor for us uh, to do to be here with you and to do that. Um, we'll get a, a little bit into the book and the events around the book, but uh, you know, first, one of our favorite questions we like to ask people is just, where did it all start? How did you first get interested in flying? That's always the question that people in aviation want to know is, is how did you get your inspiration to take to the skies and what we do every single day? And for me, small town Alabama boy, uh, my dad worked in a quarry, no military uh, in my family. And I decided I wanted to fly F-15s. And I went to my counselor and said, hey, I want to go to the Air Force Academy. I want to fly F-15s. And, and she looked at me, and I would love to say she was supportive, but she goes, what's the Air Force Academy? And uh, so from there, 17-year-old me uh, got in my car, went and found a uh, first-term senator and said, hey, sir, I want to go to the Air Force Academy. Will you sponsor me up there? And uh, I had a saying hanging on my wall my whole life. And it was cut out of a magazine. It was laminated. I looked at it every morning, every night, and it simply said, life begins at Mach 2. And I always had it, but I didn't know where it came from. So as I started speaking and writing the book, I researched it, and it came from a magazine article back in 1986 that George Plimpton wrote in Popular Mechanics magazine. And he had the opportunity to fly in an F-18. And he did about a four-page spread about how it was demanding on the pilot, how, what it was really like to be a, a fighter pilot. But most importantly, at the end of the article, he compared the F-18 to a Corvette. And to a young child in Alabama, the Corvette was something I really loved. And I said, if that is compared to a Corvette, that's what I want to do with my life. That's funny. Uh, uh, it's funny that came from a, a Plimpton article. Man, that guy got to do everything. I wonder how it compared to a quarterbacking <laughs> the Lions. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You have to go, does he understand how many people he inspired yeah. by what he wrote about? And it was it was a true non-fighter pilot article about what it was like to be a fighter pilot and the demands that are on our body and what we go through. And, and it just made me go, I want that. So from there, uh, and you, you did it. You did attend the uh, the Air Force Academy. I did. I went to the Air Force Academy uh, about three weeks after graduation, uh, with fifteen hundred of my closest friends, uh, for four years of what I like to call basic training. The whole four years. <laughs> and what, what what kind of experience was that for you? Coming out, kind of coming out of a small town, going to Colorado Springs. Uh, was it uh, was it kind of familiar to you, or was it uh, was, was it kind of a breathing from a or drinking from a fire hose? It not was breathing, it was <laughs> drinking from a fire hose the whole time. Yeah, and uh, I will tell you, it is a lot of competition to get in the Air Force Academy, as you can imagine. And when you take fifteen hundred young people that are coming as the top of their class, and lock them in one building on one campus. Guess what happens when 1,500 number ones get together? 1,499 of them aren't number one anymore. 
So it was demanding both physically and mentally, but there was also the challenge of being in college and such a high-level college with such a level of competition. And it was a great – I mean, I say the uh, freshman year there for me is one of the hardest years that I ever went through in my childhood because there was so much adaptation to the new way of life and, and getting through the Air Force Academy and the competition to be a pilot coming out of there. It was just – it was an amazing experience that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. But even now, after so many years, I will admit that I love the Academy, but I hated every day I was there, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you still have? Uh, I, I know I still have uh, dreams of uh, being in a final exam. I you know I last sat for you know twenty years ago. Is that the yeah. same thing for you? Yeah, so that dream for me is <laughs> you remember uh, final final week. We put all our finals in one week and and we ate on base because it's a military. And so we had a midnight meal that we lovingly called Scooby Snacks. If you remember Scooby Doo, so Scooby always had Scooby Snacks. And so at midnight we would go out to get our Scooby Snacks and. And about every night, you would hear somebody go screaming across the patio out there because they had hit that breaking point. And, yeah. and somebody go, well, I guess he's not getting his Scooby Snacks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was your progression of aircraft that you flew through training? How did that go? So graduating from the Air Force Academy, I went to pilot training. And back then, we went to the T-37. So the Tweet, now they fly the T-6. So you do that for about six months. I went to Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Training at Shepard Air Force Base, which is where we train fighter pilots. Um, so after six months of T-37 training, you get rank ordered, and then you go into the T-38, where you learn to fly a high-speed jet. You go supersonic for the first time, learn to fly formation, those type things. And then coming out of the T-38, you again get rank ordered, and we have assignment night. So you literally walk into a room with all of your instructors and your peers, no spouses, no friends, no anybody. They lock the door. They walk up on a stage. And at the time, they took a sheet off of a board that had you rank ordered from first to last. And it was right there. And start with number one, you get up and walk to the board. And they had magnets of every airplane that was available to be picked. And you walked up and picked the airplane you wanted, put it by your name. And you can imagine as you went down the list, the pool got smaller and smaller. So for me, I got my first choice, the F-15. I went out of there to Introduction of Fighter Fundamentals, which is where we take the T-38, put a bomb on it, uh, a gun sight on it, and we fight it against each other to start getting those basic fighter-type skills in. And then I went off to the F-15 at Tyndall to the schoolhouse to get qualified in the F-15. Then once you get to your combat unit, which was me, was the 33rd Fighter Wing at Eglin Air Force Base, it takes about three months to finish and get certified before you're a combat-ready pilot ready to deploy overseas. Wow. So the F-15, I mean, that's a great airplane, undefeated champion, as we always say. Um, what was your first impression? You know, you, you get your dream, you're assigned to the F-15, you go out on the ramp at some point, and you finally see the airplane you're going to fly for the first time. What's that feeling like? So if we could back it up a little bit, because this happened at the Air Force Academy. One of the benefits of going to the Air Force Academy is we have an assignment one summer for three weeks to go out and shadow a, a unit and see what the real Air Force, we call it, is like. For me, I happened to go to Tyndall Air Force Base. So as a senior at the Air Force Academy, I was able to get in an F-15 and go fly for the first time before I graduated, before I had the assignment, before I'd been through pilot training. And you can imagine the childhood sparkle in my eyes when I walk out and see that beast. It's the size of a tennis court, for those that don't know. It's about 13 feet off the ground when you climb up, and I'm just sitting there in admiration of this thing, and we take off. And when we get airborne, I go, oh, my gosh, I hate it. <laughs> it is brutal. It hurts. And I landed exhausted after a 40-minute flight. 
of pulling nine G's. I mean, they didn't take it easy on me. They, they full up did a normal mission with me. And I remember we went back into, uh, into the debrief room, which has a lot of computers, so it's kind of cool. And about two minutes into the debrief, I was nodding off out of pure exhaustion. I was so tired. And my instructor goes, hey, it's just an incentive ride for you. You can go ahead and go if you want to. And I left there going, oh, my gosh, this is my life's dream. And it hurt. My whole body hurts. It's bigger than any workout I ever had. And there was that moment of, do I really want to do this? And that's when I said, yep, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so that was my first flight before I went to pilot training. Yeah, that's an, it's interesting. First of all, that that that's um, definitely a lot cooler than I think any internships that we offer here. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we got to step up our game a little bit. <laughs> but um, but also, yeah, I think I think we could all kind of identify with uh, at least one or two things that we all kind of wanted to do, but then we actually got to do it, and uh, you know, it wasn't quite what we thought it was. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's probably learning to learn to fly. You know, period. But yeah. yeah. So now you actually deployed with the F-15, right? I did. I deployed with the F-15 uh, with a, uh, a young wife. My, I married my high school sweetheart. We had a child while we were in pilot training about 13 months after we got married. And uh, then shortly thereafter, uh, after having my son, we had a daughter. So you picture Eglin Air Force Base, young newlyweds, uh, two kids, and I deployed. And I deployed to a classified location. I couldn't tell her where I was, and I couldn't tell her when I was coming back. And, and that is the days before electronics as we know them today. So from over there, I got a 15-minute call on a combat phone every Sunday. That's the only wow. interaction I had with her. So it was pretty challenging. In addition to being my first combat uh, deployment, it was also challenging on the family side, which I think in the military, the family side and the support we get from them and how many times she had to be a single mom. We have four kids uh, now. And so many times I just got off an assignment to Afghanistan where I was gone for a year and she's handling four kids at home while I'm overseas wearing combat gear and running convoys. And uh, that is one aspect of the military that I think we talk about the cool flying side, you know, because it's cool. But we don't talk about the uh, backside of that with our families that support us and, and allow us to do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I know it's um, I can't even imagine what 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 kind of stresses that is on a, on a military family, especially a young family like that. Yeah, we still look back on it today and go, what were we thinking? Yeah. We, we have a son that's 23 now, and she goes, we had a kid and a kid on the way at that, at that age. Wow. You know, the, it, it's kind of like me going to the Air Force Academy. What we had going for us is we didn't know how hard it was. I didn't know how hard it was to go to the F-15 because nobody told me, thankfully. I think that's how I got there. And we got married 11 days after I graduated the Air Force Academy and had kids right after that. And we didn't know that as a young 20-something – Man, that was no babysitters, no family. I mean, you're really on your own with the uh, – now, you have your military family, and they're very supportive, but it's just different. And, uh, and we look back on that and go, it's awesome that we did it, but what were we thinking at that age? <laughs> so walk us through your progression to the Thunderbirds. I mean, that, that's a dream for a lot of people. Uh, it had to be at some point on your radar as well. So I'm going to tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't my dream. It never crossed my mind. So I went to the F-15. I did my combat assignment at Eglin Air Force Base. And then after that, I was fortunate to get pulled back to the schoolhouse to be an instructor in the F-15. And that is, as a fighter pilot, to teach at the schoolhouse and be an evaluator at the schoolhouse. I mean, you're influencing a whole generation. And, uh, and that is that's awesome. That was more than I could ever hope for. And I'll tell you, there was a, uh, there was a time we deployed down to Key West, I called a hardship tour. Uh, we went down to Key West because the Navy was in town. 
and we wanted to fight the F-18s. And I have this picture in my mind. I actually have a picture of it we'll, we'll show later uh, tonight. And I pulled up over the islands down there, and you see the contrails coming off the wings, and I look back over my shoulder and go, I'm 29, and I made it. I made my life dream of where I wanted to go. And that sounds really good, but I will tell you there's the moment of, what do I do now? I focused my whole life on being a combat instructor, F-15 pilot, and I don't know what to do tomorrow when I wake up. And I stumbled around for a few months, loving the F-15, loving instructing, but not knowing what the next steps were. And I had a senior leader that I had been deployed with before, and, and I think he just saw this. His experience allowed him to know where I was. And I can tell you what building I was in and what room it was. And he pulled me in a room one day and closed the door and goes, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, ironically, I don't know. That's the talk I'm having myself right now. And he goes, have you ever thought about being a Thunderbird? He was a former Thunderbird. And, uh, and I go, no. I never considered that. And so he started mentoring me of what it meant. And he goes, hey, I want you to go home and talk to Terry and see what she thinks. And, okay, I'll go talk to her. She's not going to want to do anything with it. I go home at dinner and I go, hey, Terry, what do you think? You know, he said, you know, think about being a Thunderbird and this is what it meant. And she goes, that's about right. I kind of picture you doing that. Let's go do it. And, and kind of like everything else, I went, okay. I dropped a few pounds. I, I trained for it. I put in a package and, and I was fortunate to get picked up my first year. Again, not knowing that it usually takes people two to three years to get selected. Uh, and I got picked up and went out there. So here I am, an evaluator pilot at the schoolhouse with the F-15, perfectly comfortable with where I'm at. And now I have to go learn to fly a different plane. It's not a center stick. It's a side stick. It's fly-by-wire. It's a half the size of the F-15, completely different mission. I had to go get combat certified. So I had to drop bomb, shoot the gun, do everything that you do in F-16 training. And I finally get qualified with it, and I show up to Nellis thinking I'm, I'm there, right? It's time to be a Thunderbird, and they go, that's awesome. Now you have 97 flights to upgrade before we actually consider you a Thunderbird. It's the longest syllabus in the Air Force. We flew three times a day, five days a week for almost four months straight. And they were all high-G maneuvers. They were exhausting because you're out on the range. As you can imagine, the show is precise because you practice it that many times. And so then as we do our check rides to get certified to go on the road, that's the first time we can wear our number and put our number and our name on our aircraft. One of the things I've always been curious about with, um, you know, with the, the major jet demonstration teams is um, kind of how, how does a how does practice, how does working up those maneuvers actually work? Do you do you practice the entire is I, I kind of envision it almost like uh, being in a, almost like being in a band, you know, where you're practicing individual parts and then you kind of put the whole song together. Is that kind of how it works or is it or are you practicing kind of the show all up uh, a lot? So you over? nailed it. Yeah, you nailed it. We practice the parts and it's you know, it's flying. It's part task training. So in the beginning, there's only one person qualified to do my maneuvers and it's the outgoing solo. So we get in the two seater and we go out and practice the maneuvers single ship. We practice the single ship maneuvers. And then after about a month of that, then we practice the two solos and the opposing work, we call it, where we start uh, 10 miles apart, we point at each other and hit show center at the, within uh, uh, 600 feet of each other. And we literally do that aspect of training and fly separately for three months. Remember I said it's a four-month training cycle. Yeah. So we do that, no kidding, for three months. I remember we put we call it putting the diamond together. That's where we start flying the six-ship formation, and we – we put the diamond together at the end of January. Our check rides begin in March. So we basically had one month of flying as a six ship, and that is practicing six ship rolls and loops and all that. 
And then we had about two weeks of practicing the show in its entirety. But everybody had practiced their individual pieces, their individual instruments, so much that when we stood on stage together, now it's beautiful music. Yeah. Okay. No, that's 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 interesting. So so you'd um, you know maybe uh, you you'd spend some days probably practicing the same maneuver over and over, and then you might do your entire. Um, you know, your entire part of the show. And then maybe if there was, you know, something you wanted to go back to, you might, hey, okay, we'll pick it up from, you know, whatever this maneuver was, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, I'm not a motion sick person as a fighter ball. I've never been motion sick in my life, except in centrifuge training, which is a whole different story. Um, and the only time I've almost gotten sick was on aileron roll day. So if you think about the show, there's one maneuver where a solo comes in low altitude, pulls vertical at show center and does aileron roll straight up until you can't see him anymore. Well, imagine aileron roll day. All I did was go out, reset, come in, and do aileron roll straight up. Go out, reset, come in, do aileron roll straight up. And and I don't remember. I think it was about the 90 count. <laughs> Somewhere around about there, I had to call a knock it off, which for us is cease maneuvering. You know, we got to see what's going on. and. Yeah. And I said, team, I'm done for the day. I have to go land because I've done so many alarm rolls that I can't take it anymore. And that happened a lot. When you're doing something your body's not used to like that, yeah. like 90 alarm rolls, you have to get used to it. Yeah, I think 90 aileron rolls straight up into the sky. I think we. I don't think we'll, we'll blame you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one more aspect we had to get used to. So the solos routinely fly around at negative three and a half Gs. And that's something that most pilots do not like is negative Gs, especially fighter pilots. We don't like yeah. it. Um, but you realize when we roll upside down to set the lift vector so that we're flying straight and level inverted, you have to you have to push the nose above horizon and spike it before you can fly at sustained flight is negative one G. Yeah, so if you don't fly inverted for about a week, the next time you fly at negative Gs, you get a horrible headache. It is, it's something you have to condition your body to because it's not something that pilots are used to. We're used to positive Gs. We're not used to negative Gs. We're trained to move the m blood around our body to keep oxygen in our brain under positive Gs. The problem with negative Gs is it forces all the blood to your brain. It feels like your eyes are going to pop out. You're really bloodshot, and that's where the headache comes from. But that's something we have to train to get used to flying around with those negative Gs. Yeah, no, that makes sense because yeah, in fighter maneuvers, you're usually pulling positive Gs because you're right. just rolling to your, your – yeah. Wow. So was there a ceremony or anything when you actually like finish your flights and you become what they consider a Thunderbird? Is there is there something that happens at that point? It's a little internal celebration, you know, because the team, because it's a big day, because realize of the six demonstration pilots, there are no backup pilots. Only one person trained to fly every position and half the team is new every year. So of the six pilots, three of them are new. And so every year, three new pilots get certified and it's becoming a Thunderbird. We have a saying, once a Thunderbird, always a Thunderbird. So it is an incredibly tight knit organization. I still talk to my team. I, I talked to my crew chief this morning before I came in here and here it's been 16 years since I was on the team. You can imagine it's such a small community that we stay very tight. So it's a very important day when you get to wear your number for the first time. That's awesome. That's, that's great. Um, so tell it, can you tell us about your first show? Like what, what was that like? You know, your first show, I still remember, we do our first show at Luke Air Force Base. So we kind of go back to where we were trained to fly the F-16, and we do our first show. And, and my family drove down there. My wife was there. And and I will tell you one thing we do is my wife, for the first time, got a lot of training behind the scenes. Because when she traveled, when the wife travels with a Thunderbird or a husband travels with the Thunderbird, 
as you can imagine, when you're out there, everybody wants to talk to her as much as they want to talk to the Thunderbird. The, the other thing I'll say about the team, and, and one of those things that came out at the first show there, is being a Thunderbird has nothing to do with you. Nothing. It has to do with the heritage you're wearing in the show suit that you're wearing and the patch you're wearing. It's just like aviation. We talked about one of the squadrons coming in, and the heritage of the squadron I had the good fortune to command is one we have out here on the floor. And even when I commanded in 2012, I wore the same patch that they wore so many years ago. And that's one of the things that, that everybody has to realize. That has nothing to do with you. It is all about the heritage of the Air Force and showing off the air power of the Air Force going forward. But I remember that at Luke Air Force Base. It's amazing the first time. So I was sneak pass guy. So if, if you've been to an air show, you know, we draw your attention up to the diamond and they're all graceful doing their thing. And then, and then I sneak up and come by you at about .97 mock it at very low altitude and make you drop that $15 Coke you just bought, right? <laughs> um, so that was the first time I saw the crowd. And it was about a little bit over halfway through the show. But you're so busy worried about that timing and hitting all the notes to make the music sing that it was the first time that I really – I mean, I saw the crowd the whole time. It's the first time that I had the fortune to stare at them and actually digest how big they were or how they were enjoying the show because it's amazing. In about that 10 to 12 seconds I came by – I could literally get the feel of the audience from the way they were looking up from show center. And that was, that was the moment that I always remember is my sneak pass. Whenever I came by and went, there are a lot of people and they're all watching us right now. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's really cool. Absolutely. Tom, yeah. we feel like that every time we go out to fly, right? Oh and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Watching us. Oh, there goes the RV. That's pretty cool. I, I will <laughs> say that every time I go to a, to a, to a jet team uh, demonstration, I'm always like, I will not get, I will not get surprised by the sneak pass. I will not get surprised by the sneak pass. <laughs> and it still happens. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I said they had to condition our families yeah. because my kids were really young then. Yeah. And what they love to do, they knew my routine by heart, just yeah. like everybody else did. Yeah. And so they would be out at show center watching, and they would go, where's dad? And they would look over their shoulder, <laughs> and it, it would be amazing. You see a six-year-old look over his shoulder in the middle of 85,000 people, and it's like everybody else went, oh, what's coming? <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, you can't do that. You're giving me away. <laughs> That's funny. So what was, was it a tough schedule, like, on the road? Like, what, what, what's that, like, uh, aspect of it like? Being you know, I'll tell you, that was the one thing that I don't think – I was any of us were prepared for it was uh 2003 was an anniversary season it was the 50th anniversary of the thunderbirds you know an anniversary it's a big deal you you try to we were trying to do more shows to hit more locations we were hitting two to three locations a week and the eight show months where we were on the road we averaged two wednesdays in vegas with our families per month and you can imagine when you're on the road that much usually it was throwing my clothes in the washer and catching up on my sleep and in addition to that, we got one mid-season break where we got a week where we weren't on the road. We didn't go to work. It's just catch your breath. And, and you know, your bodies are amazing, amazing things. And we all held up for the entire season. On mid-season break, I think we all got sick. And it was like our bodies went, okay, I can let out everything I've been holding in for the last however many months. And I think all of us were in our houses sleeping and getting out everything we had held up. And then magically at the end of the week, our bodies all pulled it back together and we went back on the road. But, but you think about this, we, we had three different color show suits. We wore a different color suit on certain days of the week. So, you know, we had a travel suit, we had a, a Saturday suit, a Sunday suit. And, and the bad thing is that's kind of how we told what day it was. 
honestly. Yeah, yeah. So every Thursday that they would put two two agendas on my desk for the next week or the next two weeks, depending on how it was. They had one for me and one for my wife, and it told me where I was going, where I would be, who I would be with, what I would be wearing. And if she was accompanying me, it would tell her what she's with, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's just an amazing you know, it's two years, and at the beginning you go, why is it only two years? Because I want to do this forever. And at the end of the first year you're going, man, I don't know if I can hold out for another year. This is, this is exhausting for me, for my family. Uh, even though we're not in combat, we're not overseas, you're never home. My wife, if you ask, if I say something about when we lived in Vegas, you'll see her, Chris. She'll look at me and go, <laughs> you didn't live in Vegas. I lived in Vegas. <laughs> well, Something I know that we're, we're going to touch on, um, and to be honest, it's something that Chris, you and I have been, have been friends for a few years here, and we've never talked about up until last night, uh, and that's the ejection. Um, can you walk us through a little bit about, about that day? Yeah, before we dive into that, because you're right, as long as we've been friends and we talk and text all the time, uh, we have never, we've never mentioned it. And, and I appreciate that you've never asked about it. Um, that's very respectful and, and, and of my feelings. And even last night, I had to kind of give you permission and go, anything you want to know, let's talk. To, to the point that, that my wife, Karen, actually was shocked to find out about the ejection. I, did, I never even told her. So. Right. So sitting on the couch in his house last night, she goes, so I will tell you, I rolled the video. That's how she found out. I have a way that when I presented, I, I roll a video and I have keyed you up. You're all excited about being behind the scenes at the Thunderbirds and, and not to give away the punch, but... I said, let's go in the cockpit. I show you my HUD video and rollout. I show you my takeoff. And, and you are the audience is always on the edge of their seats going, this is going to be awesome. And then all of a sudden you see me eject from the aircraft and the screen goes blank. And, and I thought she was going to fall off the couch. And, and she actually raised her voice to me and said, what happened? <laughs> and, and I looked at Chris and he goes, I never told her. <laughs> so, um, but I appreciate that. And the reason is, 13 years I was in the Air Force after the incident, um, and I never talked about it. It was it was traumatic in my life. Uh, so for those that don't know, uh, my opening maneuver is a max climb split S. I'm the last Thunderbird to take off. I take off, go straight up, flip over on my back, and do a split S to go back the way I came. And in Mountain Home, Idaho, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, I had a flight that was 25.25 seconds long. From the time I lifted off the runway till the explosion in the ground was 25.25 seconds long. And, uh, and you can imagine it was pretty traumatic. Uh, the Air Force way of telling a spouse that something has happened is by putting two people in uniform and driving them to the house. Everybody knows that. Every fighter pilot, uh, military spouses are, are scared of that situation. Well, because it happened in public and uh, the commander knew it was going to hit national news, he made the decision to have somebody call my wife. And... And it was pure intentions. I mean, he really was trying to do the good thing, but it goes to communication. And what you say does not matter. All that matters is what the person hears. And in, in the book, you, it details it. Uh, but basically, my wife heard that I crashed and I didn't make it. And so you can think about that when they, she hears that. It's pretty traumatic for her as well as me. So for 13 years, we ignored it. We didn't talk about it. Literally at all, it didn't come up. In, it came up in one short blurb, um, but that's it. We just didn't acknowledge it. If if the show that was on the TV, Jumanji was on the TV whenever she got the call. Literally, if I'm flipping channels and Jumanji comes on, the only thing we talk about the crash is she'll go turn it off, and I don't ask. I know what she means. I turn it off. Um, so that's part of. I didn't talk about it. So 
you can read about it in the book. There were some things happened in my last year of the military where my anxiety got so high over flying and, and how I dealt with this and how I had been quietly, we call them the invisible wounds, right? Uh, how I was dealing with this without talking to anybody, including my wife, who I talked to about everything. Um, and the way I like to say it is all of these things have been locked up in a closet. And once the closet door cracked a little bit, I couldn't get it back closed. And it was hard to deal with. And uh, coming through that, uh, I was with my co-author, um, is also an F-15, a fighter pilot. And I was, I was consulting with him. Consulting, consulting firm, not the other way. Uh, so we were traveling together all the time. And he would talk about his cancer. So he was loving life as a fighter pilot. And he went into the doctor with the pain. And they diagnosed him with a stage four of a rare kind of cancer and gave him a 15% chance of living five years. 15%. And so you can imagine he went through all that. Much different than my trauma. Mine was instantaneous. It happened. His, the diagnosis, the treatment, the recovery, by the way, it was nine years ago. He went on to run in a triathlon, run in an Ironman. He competed in America Ninja Warrior twice. And as we were talking, we went, you know, a lot of people in the military, you go to combat and you come back and other people don't. You survive a crash and you know that friends of yours, a couple of years after I had my ejection, Unfortunately, Thunderbird, uh, Blue Angel 6, in the exact same maneuver, ejected from the maneuver a split second after I did, and he didn't survive. So for us, you know, he had cancer people he was in treatment with that didn't survive the treatment. And we said, we don't, we're not remorseful for surviving. We feel that we were given tomorrow when so many people weren't. So we called it our survivor's obligation. It's our obligation to live every day to the fullest and to earn the right for a new tomorrow, for a new sunrise. And so we're talking about this, and we go, we, we think we can write a book and help a lot of people. And in the beginning, we go, yeah, but neither one of us want to talk about it. It, it hurts. And, and Chris can tell you last night, there are certain times, I will tell you, sitting on his couch last night is the most open my wife, and I told you this, has ever been talking about the crash. Uh, and, and I love that because every time I tell my story, I stand up on stage and tell my story, and I don't want to sound bad about this for me and my wife, because every time I tell it, I can get through more of it and it helps us heal. And what I found with the book is when I show that when a fighter pilot, two fighter pilots show vulnerability of, hey, we went through some trauma and here's how we dealt with it and here's how hard it was to deal with it. Um, it's amazing how many people open up and go, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me, let me tell you about the trauma in my life. And you don't have to be diagnosed with cancer or eject from an aircraft. It's, it's divorce. It's losing a job. It's losing a loved one. These are all traumas in our life. And when you look at it, each and every one of us have a trauma. We do. But how we deal with it, it's the old 10% of what happens. Our life is 10% of what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. This is our choice of how we reacted to it. And we said, we're going to take one of the worst things that happened in each of our lives, and we're going to make a good come out of it. Chris, you and I are going to stand on stage tonight. It is going to be extremely painful. I've told you before, writing the book was more painful for me and my wife than the ejection was because I had to put her in a room. I had to make her watch the videos again and listen to the audio again. And, and it forced us. The first time I talked about my story was a friend of mine who put me on contract to tell a keynote to his group. And he also put my wife in the contract. I asked him to. Because if she wasn't legally bound to be there, I knew she wasn't going to be there. And the journey for us, for her to be in the audience and not break down, and guess what? If my wife of 25 years breaks down, you're not going to keep me from breaking down. And so for us to rehearse that, 
also was us dealing with it. And that's what the book is about, is how do we deal with trauma? How do we grow from it? And what, does it, what do we make it mean? There's a lot to follow up with there, that's for sure. <laughs> um, the uh, One of the things I want to point up when we talk about the ejection, and, and we saw it last night, and something I really think is worth uh, talking about is the specs that the company who make the seat, what they put out about uh, the survivability of your ejection. So – Pilots that sit in an ejection seat know the ejection envelope by heart. It's the parameters with which we have the greatest chance of survival. Now realize, one of the things I found out is an ejection seat company telling you you have a high chance of survival means that you leave the aircraft alive. Not what I want it to mean is you leave the incident alive. And so as you look at those parameters on the ACES-2 seat in the F-16 that I had at the time, my ejection... Although there's a picture out there many of you have probably seen. It looks like the aircraft's level, but if you look, everything's dug in. It was over 8,000 feet per minute straight down, right in the elevator. It's falling out of the sky. It's not going forward as fast as it is going down. And those parameters were so far outside the envelope that the ejection seat company came back and said it was unsurvivable. They ran the parameters of the entire ejection of the entire maneuver, and they said every bit of the maneuver after I rolled, inverted, and pulled was unsurvivable, but the best chance of survivable was in a one-half-second window at the bottom of the maneuver. And what they also found is the training that I'd had for so many years in the Air Force allowed me to split that right down the middle. Think about that. A one-half-second window with the highest chance of survivability, which they still say is zero, and I split it right down the middle. After I ejected from an unsurvivable ejection, I got no swings in a parachute. I ejected it. I pulled the handles at 140 feet. I left the aircraft at 40 feet, one half second before explosion. Um, if you see the pictures, you'll see the opening shock happens to stop my forward momentum. Most of the damage happened to the left side of my body because it was my left leg low. And as I swung down underneath the parachute, I was so low that I hit the ground. Uh, fighter pilots, all pilots in the Air Force are trained to do a parachute landing fall to help dissipate the energy of how hard you hit the ground. Well, it turns out I had so much adrenaline going that I stuck the landing. I landed on my feet. And uh, they did the uh, uh, calculations on it, and they said it was equivalent to jumping off of a three-story roof and landing on your feet. Two and a half inches shorter today, which after being a uh, uh, lab person and having, I think, every doctor in the world look at me, the, uh, <laughs> the official terminology is there's not two and a half inches of cartilage in your body, so that's not possible. And in true fighter pilot fashion, I always looked at my doctors and said, I understand you say it's not possible, but I'm two and a half inches shorter. And the reason they say that is because there's not more than two and a half inches of cartilage in your body, after that it compresses, it's bone on bone, and you shatter the bones in your body. I didn't break a single bone. And I landed in the fireball. So no kidding, the explosion, I landed in the fireball in such a state of shock that I couldn't see the fire, I couldn't feel the flames. And the reason I survived is because my survival kit, which deploys off of my parachute, actually hit the ground before I did and sprayed a 10-foot circle in the burning and put the fire out, extinguished oh, wow. the fire in a 10-foot circle, and I landed right in the middle of that 10-foot circle. So as I tell you that, I mean, I'm, Chris, I'm breaking a sweat right here looking at you, just telling the story, and, and you know we got to tell the story tonight. So, um, But there's so many unsurvivable, not possible that you go, my, my pain and what I was dealing with was not why did it happen, why did it happen now, why did it happen to me? Those are the things we ask ourselves. By the way, you do not ask that of yourself if something good happens. Think about it. You never go, 
I got a pay raise at work. Why did that happen to me? No, you go, I am awesome. (laughs) It's only the bad things. You go, why did it happen to me? But for me, you know, I had a thousand page document from the Air Force dealing, telling the incident. Uh, So I knew a lot of those answers in there. My pain and my trauma was why did I survive? There's obviously something that I'm supposed to do that I haven't done yet. And every day I would go, was it today? Did I do it or did I mess it up? Right. Think about the the weight on your shoulders of what am I supposed to do and am I going to be ready? And and that's where the survivor's obligation is. You got to be ready for every day because you never know when you're going to impact somebody else. We talked about this last night with what you do with your with your warplane and, and all the people that you're getting to climb up in it and changing their lives, Chris. Think about every person you touch, and the reason you're here might be for one of those people. The reason I survived might be for one interaction that I talked to and helped somebody through PTSD, through their trauma, helped somebody that's in need. You never know, and we will never know. I truly believe. We may never know exactly why we're here on this earth, but it gives me chills to think about that because I go, is today the day? Is this podcast it? Are we going to reach somebody that's going to go, this resonates with me? That's why we wrote the book is because I'll tell you my story. Although painful and emotional, if it helps each person that reads it, it's worth me breaking a sweat telling you this story for what it might help others. And and we should all think about that in every one of our roles and our lives, in, in our family, in our community. It, it's amazing burden to carry for each of us if we're truly living it out and making the most of every single day. This, I, I guess, this 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 next question seems, uh, in, in light of that, seems maybe a little bit pedantic, but I, I, I do, I, I, I am genuinely curious. Um, so, if you take us back, and you know, for those of you who are who are listening to this and may not have been familiar with it, I, obviously, this is the. There's a very very famous picture of you leaving the aircraft. Uh, it will probably be posted, you know, in in connection with this podcast when we when we put it online. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, you ejected coming out of the bottom of that split S, um, uh, just before the aircraft hit the ground. Um, at what point did you know that you were going to be leaving the aircraft? Uh, when I rolled inverted and pulled. Okay. So, uh, so, so as the top you, of the maneuver, yeah. I rolled inverted and pulled. And, uh, what we had been trained is one of the famous things in the Thunderbirds is we always say, trust your numbers because you are so far outside your comfort zone when you start flying those maneuvers. You're outside the F-16 envelope in certain areas. And so we always say, trust your numbers. No matter what you do, you trust your numbers. And what they taught me in training season was once I rolled inverted and dug in, once I started the nose tracking below the horizon, I was so low that I couldn't unload, roll out, and recover before I hit the ground. And so I rolled inverted and pulled. And right as the nose tracked through the horizon and I was committed to going through the rest of the maneuver, I went, this doesn't work. This doesn't look right. You know, I'd flown this almost 300 times, and everything is visual. Realize, we're flying some of the most high-tech aircraft in the world, and nothing we are using except for looking outside and an analog stopwatch. That's it. So I start to pull, and I go, I need to abort, and I go, I can't. I can't. The safety abort, the safety observer, if I was low, should have called my abort. He didn't. So I go, okay, trust your numbers. So I got to roll. I can't abort. I have to pull through. And so I think about ejecting, I decide not to, and I pull through the vertical. As I'm pointing straight down at just over 1,000 feet, I go, okay, there is no way I'm going to make it through the bottom of this thing. I've got to eject. Well, realize I'm pointed straight at the ground. And as I think about ejecting, I go back to that ejection envelope and go, I am so far outside of parameters, I'm not even going to get a parachute 
before I hit the ground because of my downward momentum. And right as I really consider ejecting out of my peripheral vision at the top right of my canopy, I see the crowd. Now I'm going to tell you, the flight was 25.25 seconds long. Think what you do in 25 seconds. You take a drink of the coffee sitting in front of us. But for me, it was over three hours long. I had temporal illusion, temporal distortion that no kidding made time almost stop. So I remember looking out at the crowd, literally looking at their faces. I can see it in my mind and, and thinking, I can't risk saving myself and jeopardize people watching the show. And so I have the control tower to my left, the show line to the right where all the people are. And so I decide not to eject and I rotate the aircraft away from the crowd so that when it hits the ground, it'll roll kind of between them. And, and I go, it's kind of like being a Thunderbird when I said it's not about you, it's about the suit. Yeah. Nothing I'm telling you. I don't want you to think it's because it was me. This is what the training in our military puts in. So people always ask me, man, was that, were you amped up? Or is it, were you worried? And I go, it was the most calm I was in my entire life for the entire flight. Uh, because my training had led me, I had already made every one of those decisions, chair flying, right? We're in aviation. We chair fly everything first. I had already been through this so many times in my mind. I had mentally flown every maneuver with every abort, everything that could go wrong. And I knew my follow on actions so that I was on autopilot going, this is what I do. So it was incredibly calm. So I rotate away. I keep pulling. And all of a sudden, I get ground rush. And as pilots know, there is a certain ground rush out of your peripheral vision where you go, I'm about to touch down. It happens on landing intentionally. Sure. The gear's down. We touch down the right place. But you still get a ground rush. So for me, that was at 140 feet, it turns out. And, and I'll tell you, this is – my wife hates it when I tell it this way. But I go – I have my flying hand, which is my right hand. I think about it, and I go, I'm not ejecting. Captain goes down with a ship, right? I'm a fighter pilot. I took this plane off and I'm taking it back or I'm not going back. And that sounds cold, but that's training. You do everything you can to save the aircraft. And I made the conscious decision. So the other thing people ask me is, how is it to make the decision to eject? And I go, I don't know. I never have. Because what happened is, as I make the decision not to eject, I slowly watch the canopy come off my aircraft. I watch the rockets fire that's taking it away from the aircraft. And I go, huh, why is the aircraft doing this well I either jettison the canopy or I ejected and I literally looked down at my jettison handle and it's still where it should be I go well, I didn't jettison the canopy and at that point if you there's a video out there if you watch it you'll see my left shoulder move three times the three times I thought told you about ejecting and then you'll see my head look down into my lap that's because I'm trying to figure out why the canopy's coming off my jet and as I look down I realized that my left hand my family hand as I call it has pulled the handle and it's in the middle of my chest because my left hand said, hey, fighter pilot hand, you think you want to stick with this, but you can't do that to Terry. You have to try. And at that point, I have the ejection handle. Realize Thunderbirds solos fly with negative, full negative trend. So if I let go of the stick, it is going to do a negative three and a half tuck and hit the ground immediately. So I eject with one hand like I'm not supposed to because I have to keep flying. As I see the handle up in my chest, I literally shove back in my seat. Remember, it's reclined at 30 degrees. That's the way the F-16 is designed. I take my right hand, throw it over my left, and shove back in the seat so that I don't lose any limbs as I go out into the jet stream. So that is what the – and now the next frame in my mind. I didn't lose consciousness, but my mind doesn't – I don't think my mind thinks I can handle everything in between. So I go from the frame where I went up the rails to standing on the ground. I don't remember landing. I don't remember anything. I remember standing on the ground. Wow. Well, uh, man, my uh, I'm, I'm 
my heart's rushing and I'm sweating just say, yeah, listening I'm, to this. We're sitting in a nice safe studio and yeah. uh, man. Um Wow. Um how was let, let me ask you this going forward. Do you remember the first time you saw Terry after all of it? <laughs> I do. I do. So remember I said I was two and a half inches shorter? I married my high school sweetheart. We've been together forever. I don't remember a life without Terry. But there's one thing I didn't know. And and I'll tell you, when she ran up to hug me, um, so she comes up to hug me. We're both standing up. And I remember that moment. I hug her, and I, I think, huh, she got taller. <laughs> but it turns out when you've been hugging somebody for that many years, you know exactly where your face is aligned. You know that you fit like a glove. And I and I literally step back, and, and I remember she goes, what are you doing? You, you know, in that loving, wifely yeah. Are you yes. crazy? Yeah, we experienced that last yes. night. Yes, yeah. yes, you heard some of that. Um, and I, I step back and I go, take me to the hospital. And, and she goes, what? And I go, take me to the hospital. And I explained to her on the way over there what I was thinking, and I walked in. And, and as you can imagine, the hospital knew me. I had been there every day since the ejection. And, and I walk in, and I go, team, I want you to measure my height. Now, in all the wisdom of the Air Force, what do you think the first question is when you say measure my height? How tall are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, <laughs> so and I, I want go, you to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I go, that's the problem. You've been doing this for years. Measure my height. And I get up there, and, uh, and she goes, you are 5'8". And I go, open my record and write that in, please. I said, I'm two and a half inches shorter. And she goes, you know, everybody's like, now the whole, I think the whole hospital's out watching now. And she goes, there's no way. And she opens my record. And for the past nine years of my life, I've been 5'10 and a half. And it took hugging my wife to realize that, because it realized I left the I left the site in a helicopter, right to go into a trauma center on a backboard. So so when I was intaked into the hospital, intook, uh, they didn't measure my height. Needless to say, and it took hugging my wife to know. And to this day, so so fast forward when I was going through this two and a half years ago, I was telling the story to my doctor, who is now one of my best friends, and I tell him the story. And I go, the good thing is I've gotten all that height back. <laughs> And he looks at me as a supportive friend he is, and he goes, you're crazy. You didn't get anything back. And I go, look at my record. Now, every time I come in, they ask me how tall I am, and I say 5'10 and a half. <laughs> and he goes, get up. And he takes me down the hall, puts me on, and he goes, 5'8. You didn't get it back? You're never going to get it back. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually kind of funny that they didn't, they, they didn't figure that one out with, through your workup uh, after the ejection, because every ejection story I've heard, that, that's always figures prominently that, you know, you lose a little bit of height in, on, on the ejection. But Yeah, well, yeah. I, uh, I spent about the next, I don't know exactly, maybe 11 hours on a backboard strapped down. Hmm. And uh, there's a whole story. I mean, I was bleeding out of both the ears. They thought I'd ripped, the ejection had ripped my heart. I guess there's a muscle that holds your heart in place. And it's a pretty heavy yeah. organ. So if you leave the aircraft at whatever it is, 30, 40 Gs, you, your heart can stay still and your body moves around yeah, it. So, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, there was one moment in there I had these two doctors, specialists, and they were awesome. But I call them standing outside the magic curtain because picture me laying on a bed on a backboard and they're out there talking about, you know, bleeding here and, and this and that. And I go, hey, guys, it's only a curtain between me and you. I can hear you. Will you please come back in here and talk about it in front of me because the magic curtain is not soundproof. Um, but at the end of that, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning, and, uh, and I was in Boise, Idaho, and the doctor comes in and goes, well, I recommend you do this very slowly and very carefully, but it turns out nothing's broken, and I'm going to let you walk out of here. And he comes and unstraps me from the backboard, and he helps me up, and literally I walked out of the hospital. Wow. 
when you when you say about sorry to, to dwell on this, it's just I'm, I'm curious when, when you were talking about being shorter and, and 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 all that the violence of the ejection. Does the seat actually fire harder when it's when it's you know in that well actually outside of its envelope, but that far? Uh, I think the seat always fires the same. Okay. What happens is once you leave the aircraft, then the rockets are doing magic to get you right side up because you can inject okay. inverted, yeah. and the seat will actually turn around and get you away from the ground. But a rocket is a rocket. I think it fires at one speed. It's just directional of how it turns you around. And, and most of mine didn't happen on the way out of the aircraft. Mine happened on the landing. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, because you were coming down. Uh, well, or at like least said, that's what of, they off think. Off of a building, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is, uh, this is incredible. And I, I'm really honored that you're going to be launching the book here with us. Um, I also want to say a kind word uh, to not just Terry, but to to all the the – significant others, family, friends who support uh, those who serve, because your story is certainly a, a, a great example of that, that there's a, a support network for each person that serves in our military. There is, and, and it goes back to me telling you the book was the hardest thing, and, and I'll tell you, we had one of those moments uh, that I didn't see coming. After the author copies arrived at my house, I had a couple in my truck, and, and uh, we were going to camp with my family, and I look in the back seat, and my daughter has put, took one out of the pocket on the seat, my 16-year-old, and is reading one of the books. I didn't think anything about it, right? She lived through it. She knows. Well, she didn't live through it. We adopted her after, after my injection. So um, she reads the book, and, and it's amazing. That's all she wanted to do all weekend was read the book. And, and the same thing happened with Joel. He sat down with his his children and read the book with them on the back porch. So so I talked to her as she's going through, and it's amazing that she knows the story because it's in our family, but it was a perspective of what happened that she had never heard me talk about. And so it was an incredible family moment because it made us closer because now she knows everything from my perspective, not just how it impacted our family. Um, but that is... All of our traumas is not just about the person that goes through the trauma. We talked about one situation last night, Chris, where where somebody had thought an air traffic controller had thought an aircraft crashed, and they put him in a room. They had him write a statement up before he found out what had happened to the crew, and and luckily he finds out that everybody survived on that plane. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because his in mind, in my wife's mind, the fact that I survived is pretty awesome. But the trauma she went through, real quick if I could, so one of the things fighter pilots are not supposed to do is call their wife whenever something happens. Because you think about that and you go, why couldn't you call your wife? Because if nine fighter pilots call their wives and there's ten wives, you just highlighted who didn't make it back. So it's one of those things. But but after I had found out, Thunderbird 1 came into the hospital and told me he had called Terry. He had had somebody call Terry and why. And, and I don't disagree with that. But at that point, I'm waiting on the helicopter to spin up. They're waiting to take me to the trauma center, and they go, is there anything you can do? And I go, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to, but I need to call my wife because she needs to hear my voice because the Air Force telling her I'm okay, nothing against the Air Force, but spouses are going to assume that just is them delaying until they can get somebody to the house. And so you picture this. I've got you know, 15, 20 people in a room, and everybody flips out their cell phones. The towers are overwhelmed. We can't get a line out. And the youngest guy in the room, the youngest airman in the room goes, sir, I got you. And he picks up the phone, the hard line phone, and goes, I need an emergency breakthrough. And he literally had an, it was back in the days of the operator, not to yeah. date myself too much. <laughs> but he literally gets an emergency breakthrough to get my wife on the phone. 
And if you read the book, I think I put a little bit about this. Terry hates it when I tell this story of she yelled at me so bad. And I could hear all the emotion coming out and I could hear how it went. And she was just so excited to talk to me. And it was just that moment of hearing my voice. Because that's how you know somebody's alive if, if you hear their voice. And that was one of those moments. And, and finally, I had to say, babe, I got I to gotta go get on a helicopter. I'll call you when I can. I just wanted you to hear my voice. And it's the trauma that she went through, that my kids went through. And, and that is what talking about military people is, you know, when you're overseas doing what you do, doing what the military does, you forget what you're doing to the families back home. When, you know, I was running convoys in my last assignment, I was outside the wire in full combat gear all the time. And, and if I could, one quick story on that is one of the captains that, that worked for me, worked with me, I had the good fortune to meet his, his wife uh, after we got back from Afghanistan. I was having dinner at their house and, and we were talking about comp because we're both pilots but we were working with the army and running convoys. And his wife looks at me and goes, I never worried. I never worried about him running convoys because I knew you guys were together. And that's, that is what made me sleep okay at night. As okay as a spouse can when that's going on. But it's amazing what our families do. I mean, my family moved 18 times in 23 years. My oldest two kids did 11 schools in 12 years. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So you touched on it briefly, but um, and we're we've been having such an amazing discussion. We are kind of running long here, but I, I did want to touch on it. Is um, uh, what was your? You, you mentioned that you're in the in the Air Force for you know, more than a decade afterwards. Um, what um, what did you what did you go on to in the Air Force afterwards? So I was in the Air Force 23 years and three months, because most military people can tell you exactly how long they were in. <laughs> so after I left the uh, after I left the Thunderbirds, I flew with the Aggressor Squadron at Nellis for a little while which is an amazing squadron with an amazing mission. My family my family needed a break, so we went to the Pentagon, worked at the Pentagon for about two years, which was phenomenal. I was a pilot career phone manager. Uh, our rated assets, our pilots, navigators, everybody that's rated in the Air Force is $840 billion worth of assets, and, and I had a chance to work for the two-star and, and manage that, which is a pretty amazing place. Uh, and after I left there, I went to Turkey as a combat zone and worked a NATO job over there. Came out of there, went to school. I did squadron command. Chris and I were talking about this. One of the aircraft they have here in their hangar was a heritage of my squadron, the 49th. Um, after squadron command, I went to school again. I did a uh, my Afghanistan tour I alluded to. I put on colonel. I went over there in uh, NATO Air Training Command, Afghanistan, teaching the Afghan Air Force, standing it up, teaching them to fly helicopters in Cessnas, which was an amazing assignment. But it was a year away from the family, and it was a year on the streets of Afghanistan. Came out of there and went to uh, Beale Air Force Base, where I was a vice wing commander for all the re- high-altitude reconnaissance. Oh, wow. And that's where Chris and I met. Actually, the Air Force asked me to come out to Oshkosh, to uh, Air Venture, to give the first keynote about reconnaissance aircraft. Because we're kind of touchy about that in the Air Force. <laughs> we don't like to talk about it. And so I'm sitting in California one day, and I, I, my public affairs officer walks in, and she goes, hey, sir, I got a good speaking engagement for you. She goes, some guy from Oshkosh called and got it approved by the Air Force for us to give a keynote on our reconnaissance aircraft. Do you mind going out and doing that? And Chris and I have laughed about this. Of how in the world did you get the Air Force to bite off on this? And he goes, I just looked up the phone number and called. All they could do is tell me no. <laughs> and so that's where we met so many years ago, and I retired out of there and, and went on into what I – it's not retirement from the Air Force. I think that's misleading. I call it Life 2.0 because we leave the Air Force – Air Force old, because I'm one of the older people in the Air Force. But when you get in the civilian world, you realize the Air Force is really a young population. When everybody's, the majority of the Air Force retires by their mid-40s, 
it's amazing when you come out and go, I can have an entire other career and yeah. make a difference somewhere else outside of the Air Force. Well, Colonel, it's been um, it's been an honor uh, talking to you. I mean, this has probably been one of the uh, the most emotional uh, pod, yeah. the most emotional podcast we've had. Um, your book is Survivor's Obligation, uh, and it uh, it launches tonight uh, the, on uh, the twentieth of uh, September. Um, so, thank you very much for uh, for sitting down with us today, Chris. As always, it's been a been a, been a pleasure and an honor. Absolutely. <laughs> And um, we will see you next time when you are cleared to land on the green dot. Mm-hmm.